John chapter 20, and we're going to begin reading in verse 19. John 20, verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands at his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace to you, as the Father has sent me, so I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And then this interesting verse, verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now, Thomas, verse 24, called the twin, one of the 12, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples, therefore, said to him, we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see his hands, the print of the nails, and I put my finger to the print of the nails, and I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and he said, peace to you. And then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here. Look at my hands. Reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And in verse 30, and truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And then in John chapter 21, verse 24 and 25, we read these words. This is the disciple, this is John speaking, who testifies of these things and who wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. Father, thank you for your word today. And I pray, Lord, that you would still us, still us, our hearts, our minds, our souls, in these next few minutes. I pray, God, that you would powerfully permeate this place with your presence and that the living word of God would convict us, would challenge us, calm us, encourage us, embolden us, and focus us as we walk this walk for your glory. Lord, I am asking you to supernaturally turn the attention of everyone in this room toward your word. And I'm praying, God, that you would help me to speak that word with clarity, with simplicity and boldness. Praying, God, for your anointing, though I don't deserve it, 
I've not earned it, but I pray, God, that in my weakness, that your strength would be perfect and that the word of the Lord would change hearts in this place today. But I'm asking you to do what I can't do and no human can do. I'm asking you to literally transform us today. Give us greater hope than we've ever had before, greater vision, greater intentionality, and greater focus. Would you do that? in these few moments that remain, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we're bringing this series to a close today. Um, it's a series that has focused on the signs that Jesus did as recorded by John. We're only looking, we have only looked at John's gospel. As I've noted repeatedly, these signs in John's gospel are more than just miracles. It's more than just him healing a blind man. It's more than just a lame man walking or some kind of miracle that takes place that benefits the recipient. These are signs, the Greek word simeon, that speak to something else. They point us forward beyond the miracle itself. We've looked at seven of these signs so far, the only seven that have been mentioned or that are mentioned in John the turning of the water to wine in chapter two, the healing of the nobleman's son, chapter four, the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda in chapter five, the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on water of chapter six, the healing of the man born blind in chapter nine, and the raising of Lazarus in chapter 11. And last week was Easter and we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus. But we learned how the raising of Lazarus has some powerful connections with the resurrection of Christ. Today we're going to take just a very few moments and we're going to look at the appearances of Jesus on the other side of the resurrection, the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. And we're going to learn how those post-resurrection encounters with the disciples stir us and our hearts and our faith to believe. The focus of today's message, just right off the bat, let me tell you, is the concept or the notion or the value of faith or belief. A faith that God longs for us, for all of us to possess. The Bible is clear, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And this is the faith that he desires for us, all of us, to live in, to walk in, and to possess. It's a faith that is unshakable, a faith that is immovable. Now remember that the point of the signs is that you may believe. And this word believe is a Greek word, pistio, and it means to be persuaded or to be confident in. So John said, the reason that I chronicle these particular signs are so that it will build your confidence. It will persuade you to be absolutely confident in the person of Jesus Christ. So let's go to the text real quickly, if we could, and let's notice the first appearance of Jesus to the disciples after the resurrection. Already, Mary Magdalene has encountered Jesus at the tomb in the garden, 
And she ran back and she told the disciples, they have taken the body of the Lord and I don't know where they have taken him. And she had this encounter with one that she first supposed to be the gardener, but found out later that it was Jesus. So the disciples have not yet themselves seen Jesus and they are locked up in a room hiding. Now they had narrowly escaped being arrested at the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was taken. But if the body of Jesus is really gone, they are going to be the suspects. And the Romans are gonna come after them and they know that. And so they are locked up, holed up in an upper room and they are just trying to figure out what their next step is going to be. They're probably planning their escape out of town. How will they get out of Jerusalem without people seeing them? And suddenly, though the doors were locked, Jesus appears to them. It's clear that his glorified body had different properties because he was able just to pass through the walls. But at the same time, there was clear, it is clear there was some continuity because he still had scars in his hands and still had a scar in his side. And so we have this glorified body and yet there are still scars that he bears and he enters into the room while they are there and he is in their midst and the disciples, of course, are glad to see him. He breathes on them and he says, receive ye the Holy Spirit. And he says to them, he recommissions them, as the Father has sent me, so I now send you. And then he makes this statement about forgiveness. Those that you forgive, their sins will be forgiven. And those you retain their sins, their sins will be retained. It's kind of a difficult text, often misunderstood, and it's not the point of the sermon, but since I read it, I need to give it at least some explanation. Merrill Tinney probably says it best. He says what John is saying is that we announce, or what Jesus is saying is we announce it. We announce forgiveness. We do not create it. This is the essence of salvation, and all who proclaim, he's speaking to disciples here, later to be apostles, all who proclaim the gospel are in effect forgiving or not forgiving sins, depending on whether the hearers accept or reject the Lord Jesus as their sin bearer. It's not that when we preach, we are the one forgiving. It's that when we proclaim, if a person responds in faith, then they are forgiven. If they reject, then they still bear the guilt for their sin. But in that first appearance, Thomas was not there. And so Thomas said, I don't really believe you guys. They said, Thomas, we've seen the Lord. And he said, you know what? I'm not going to believe it until I see the prince in his hand, until I can thrust my hand into his side. I'm not going to believe that the Lord is alive, which then leads to eight days later and the appearance to Thomas. They're in the same room. Apparently, they have not yet left, but Thomas has now shown up, and he is with them. And Jesus, again, appears in the same way. The doors are shut, and he immediately goes to Thomas, and he calls Thomas out, and he challenges Thomas, and he said, Thomas, here you go. This is what you wanted to see. Here are my hands. Here is my side. Go ahead, buddy. Stick your fingers in the prints and put your hand in my side 
And Thomas fell before him and said, my Lord and my God. Now, by the way, that seems acceptable to us, but it would not have been to a Jew to say that to Jesus. They didn't yet have this concept of Messiah and God. We'll talk about that in a moment, but this is a faith proclamation, my Lord and my God. And then the words of Jesus to Thomas, he said to him, Thomas, you've seen me, and because you've seen me, you believed. But Thomas, blessed are those who have not yet seen and still do believe. Thomas, I'm glad that, that you believe me because you've seen, but what I'm really looking for is a faith in people that even though they don't see my hands and they don't see my side, they will still have faith in me and believe. And then John adds his words to the end of that story. I love this. Jesus truly did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. I want to look at faith this morning for just a few moments, or belief, such a key theme of John's gospel. Listen to what John said in the prologue, the opening words of his gospel. Jesus came into his own, and his own did not receive him, but as many as did receive him, to them gave him the right or the power to become the children of God to those who believe, pistio, in his name. I want you to look at the screen for just a moment, and I want you to see that what receiving Jesus means is that I believe in Jesus. Receiving Jesus is I have faith that he is who he says he was. If I am going to receive him and become a child of God, I have to have faith. I have to have belief in who he said he was. Let me share with you four certainties that we find in this text. They're all very simple, but I think they'll be helpful this morning. Number one, Jesus is unreservedly committed to our faith. The Bible says, by the way, that he is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Jesus wants, look at me for just a moment, Jesus wants all of us to be people of strong faith, people of mature faith, people of developed faith. Thomas had been pretty clear he said, I have to have evidence to believe. If I don't see it, if I don't touch him, I am not going to believe. Thomas had a known proclivity toward being a skeptic. Remember, we just learned last week when, when the disciples said to Jesus, you probably don't want to go back to Judea because they're trying to kill you there. And then Jesus finally says, we're going to go back and we're going to see Lazarus. And it was that kind of skeptical, cynical Thomas who said, oh, why not? Let's just go and we can die with him as well. That was kind of his attitude. He was a skeptic. He doubted. He said, unless I see his hands and see his side, I will not believe. He had staked his ground. But now when he sees Jesus, he falls before him, and he says, my Lord and my God. Leon Morris said this really well. He said, but Thomas was not such a skeptic as he thought he was. 
at the sight of Jesus, all of his doubts vanished, and he did not need to apply any of his tests. Thomas didn't say, yeah, let me put my finger there. Thomas just fell before him. It is possible that it was the words of Jesus more than anything that brought conviction, for they showed that Jesus was perfectly aware of what Thomas laid down as his demands. We think about this for just a moment. Jesus showed up in the room. He wasn't there eight days before, and yet he knew what Thomas needed. He showed up. Thomas thought he had said it just to the disciples. Unless I see his hands and unless I see his side and I put my hand and my finger there, I will not believe. He said it in the company of the disciples. And now Jesus shows up and he has not been given, he, he, he was not talked to in the green room and told what he needed to do. He just showed up and he went right to Thomas and he said, Thomas, here you go. And it was probably the words of Jesus that made Thomas realize he knows me. He's committed to me. He wants me to believe. And so Thomas said, I don't need to touch your hands. I don't need to thrust my hand in your side. You see, the really powerful and beautiful truth is that Jesus wanted to turn the heart of Thomas because he was committed to Thomas believing. Jesus wanted more than anything else for Thomas to have faith. He wanted to make certain that Thomas did believe, and so he was willing to go the extra mile and show up and say to Thomas, Thomas, I know what you want. Here it is, so that Thomas would believe. Would you listen to me really closely this morning? Jesus is still committed to our faith and the faith of those that we love. Do you, do you know, think for just a moment, just in your mind, somebody that you desperately want to come to Jesus, somebody that you love, maybe it's a son or a daughter, maybe it's a mom or a dad, maybe it's a husband or a wife, a grandparent, a grandson or granddaughter, someone that you desperately want to know Jesus, to have faith in him. Can I tell you, Jesus wants them to come to faith even more than you do. How many believe that's true? He was willing to go out of his way so Thomas would believe. It should encourage us because as much as we want them to come to faith, Jesus is more unreservedly committed to that. He is unwilling that any perish, but all come to repentance. That should guide our prayer lives. Jesus, make yourself known to my children and to my grandchildren, to my husband or my wife. Jesus, make your presence real to them. Let them see you, let them know you. God, open their eyes because 2 Corinthians 4 says the God of this world is blind to their eyes. Our prayer should be God, open their eyes so they can see you. Our prayer should be in this place. When we gather on Sunday morning, God, let people Feel your presence and know that you're here so they say, I do believe. How many want to make that your prayer? Jesus is unreservedly committed to our faith. He is committed to our faith and to the faith of the lost. Andrew Murray said, remember the great need you have of the grace and assistance of God. You should never lose sight of him, not for a moment. We need God's presence in this place 
That's what will turn people to faith, and Jesus is committed to that. Can I just get real practical for just a moment? On your way here on Sunday morning or when you're still at home, would you just start praying, God, show up in such a powerful way, in such a powerful way, that people whose faith is shaky or have no faith at all would sense your presence, and they would know that you are real, and their lives would be changed. Jesus is committed to our faith. Number two, there is a non-negotiable content to authentic faith. Look, look at these words of John. Truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written, the ones I chose, John said, so that, they may, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and then in believing you may have life in his name. Let me just talk for a moment, theology. Can I do that? Notice two components. These are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, that's the Messiah, and that he is the Son of God. Leon Morris says, we take these two as more or less identical, but the Jews did not. The Jews saw God and Messiah as two different things. They saw the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one as different than God. So John said, I wrote these things so that you might believe that he is the Christ and that he is the Son of God. That Jesus is the Christ, that he is the anointed one, the Messiah, the long expected one. You see, the Jews were looking for one that would fulfill the prophecy of Moses who said, there's a greater prophet coming. He's greater than me. He's going to come and he's going to bring deliverance to the Jewish people. And he is going to deliver the kingdom of David back to the Jewish people. They were looking for that. And he would rule the age to come. The Jews were looking for that. And John said, I wrote these things so that you would know that Jesus is that one. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. But he's not just the Christ. He is the Son of God. This, by the way, was not what the Jews expected. They were so committed to monotheism, that is one God. They could not conceive the concept of a trinity and to think that someone else could also be God. They didn't understand that, and so they would accept him maybe as the Messiah, but the Son of God, that could not be. But John said, I wrote these things so you believe both of those things. That Jesus is the Christ and that he is the Son of God. John's point was that these signs were given to show that Jesus was both. He was the fulfillment of all of their hope and all of the promises of a future kingdom. And at the same time, he was very God. He was the very God. He was deity. He was the Son of God. And any other, listen, any other faith in another person or another religion would not be authentic and would not be saving faith. Let me say it this way. Maybe this is never more important than now as we live in a world that has embraced all kinds of religious beliefs. 
You see, it's in John's gospel where Jesus makes exclusive claims. John 10, 30. I and the Father are one. John 14, 6. No man comes to the Father except by me. That is so important today. Please listen to me. Religious fervor, religious enthusiasm, religious commitment, if it is not directed exclusively to Jesus as the Son of God, it is void and empty and promises no hope but only eternal damnation. You cannot be all geared up and have religious fervor toward just anything and have the hope of eternal life. It is only in Jesus who is the Christ and the Son of God. Say amen if you believe that. Listen to this stat. 56% of evangelicals, more than half, believe that God accepts the worship of other religions. More than half of evangelical Christians accept that. Can I just tell you, it doesn't matter if 99% think that, he does not. Jesus is the Christ and the Son of a living God. Say amen if you believe that. It is so important that we not, that we not waver on that doesn't matter what other people think. It doesn't matter if it's cool. It doesn't matter if it's woke. It doesn't matter if it makes everybody happy or not. The truth is there is only one way to God, and that is through the person of Jesus Christ. Rick Matson in Faith is like skydiving. says, I'm not the one making the exclusive claim about salvation. Jesus is. He's the one who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm simply trusting his authority to know these things. It's like going to my excellent family physician, Dr. Lehman. If he tells me my cholesterol is too high and I need to cut down on sweets and fatty foods, I believe him. He's an expert on the matter. Sure, there are plenty of other voices I could listen to about my health, including celebrities and infomercials and tabloid articles. To the extent that these voices disagree with Dr. Lehman, they are most likely wrong. My physician has made the exclusive claim that his patient, me, has a certain malady that requires a certain treatment. I'm just the amateur who believes him. Jesus Christ has made an exclusive claim that we have a malady called sin that only has one remedy, and that is the blood that he shed on the cross, and everybody else can posit their opinions, but there is only one that's true, and it's the opinion of Jesus Christ. He is the Christ and the Son of the living God. This is a non-negotiable piece of our authentic faith. How many believe that? to be true. Let me give you the third point real quickly. There's a glorious outcome experienced by those who possess authentic faith. I love this. Note the text again. Truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God. And look at this last part and that believing you may have life in his name. Life in his name. There are three New Testament words for life. The first one is bios. 
Um, this is the physical life. Jesus spoke about the anxieties and the riches and, of life and not to worry about what you would eat or drink or how you would survive a life. He talked about the pleasures of life. The word is bios. It's where we get biology. There's a second word for life. It's suke. This is the soul life. It's the feelings where we get psychology, feelings, emotions, mind, the will. Jesus said whoever wants to save his life, the suke life, the emotional life, has to lose it. And there's a third word, it is zoe. This is spiritual life. It's vital life. This is what John is talking about in John 20, that in believing, they might have life through his name. You see, those who have authentic faith in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, they have zoe life through his name. Let me talk about this Zoe life just real quickly. First of all, this is the life that originates in Jesus. In John chapter 1 and verse 4, speaking of Jesus, in him was Zoe life. In him was spiritual life. This is a life that frees us from condemnation and the guilt of our past. In John 3, 36, he who believes in the Son has everlasting Zoe, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see Zoe life but the wrath of God abides in him. This is the kind of life that promises us we do not have to experience condemnation. This is a life that, that lives fully satisfied by the presence of Jesus. In John 4, 14, Jesus said, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water I shall give in him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting zoe. It is satisfying life that comes in Jesus. This is life number four with perpetuity. That is, it is eternal. It began when we were saved, so death cannot stamp it out. John 6, verse 47, truly I say to you, he who believes in me has eternal everlasting zoe and life. And number five, this is life which is abundant, which is full, which is unhindered by the enemy. Jesus said, the thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I've come, Jesus said, that you might have zoe life, that you might have abundant life, life more abundantly. How many want to live abundant life? Don't you want to live that? Tim Keller writes this. He said, imagine you're a billionaire and you have three $10 bills in your wallet. You're a billionaire. Three $10 bills in your wallet. You get out of a cab and you hand the driver one of the bills for an $8 fare. Later in the day, you look in and you find there's only one $10 bill there and you say, either I dropped a $10 bill somewhere or I gave the taxi driver two bills. What are you gonna do? Are you gonna get all upset? Are you gonna go to the police and demand that they search the city for the cab driver? No, you're gonna shrug. You're a billionaire. You lost $10, so what? You're too rich to be concerned about that kind of loss. This week, somebody criticized you. Something you bought or invested in turned out to be less valuable than you thought. Something you wanted to happen didn't go your way, and you wanted it to. These are real losses. But what are you going to do if you're a Christian? 
Will this setback disrupt your contentment with life? Are you going to shake your fist at God? Are you going to toss and turn it not? If so, I submit it's that because you don't know how rich you truly are. If you're that upset about your status with other people, if you're constantly lashing out people for hurting your feelings, and you call it a lack of self-control or a lack of self-esteem, and it is, but more fundamentally, you've totally lost touch with your identity. As a Christian, you are a spiritual billionaire, and you're wringing your hands over $10. We get upset over the littlest things. Churches split over the dumbest things, and Jesus came to bring us zoe, life, life more abundantly. Say amen if you believe that. And so Jesus, there is this incredible promise, glorious outcome experienced by those who possess authentic faith. And let me finish with this one. Those who truly believe, who possess authentic faith, live lives of unfettered anticipation. Why don't you go ahead and stand? Worship team's gonna come. It's a short point. So why don't you go ahead and stand, if you would, this morning. Stand with me. Here's the end of John's gospel. One of my favorite verses. There are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written find that fascinating? He only lived 33 years. He really only did ministry for three. And John said, there's a whole lot of other stuff Jesus did. I suppose if we tried to write it all down, there wouldn't be enough books in the whole world to contain it. I guess I sometimes even think John has seen what Jesus is still doing. He's still working. How many believe Jesus is still working? never put a limit on what he has done or is doing. And, and can I just point out something? These are John's words. And he knew Jesus really well. John was the one that um, laid his head on the breast of Jesus at the Last Supper. He was the beloved disciple. Part of that inner circle, Peter, James, and John he was, the, uh, he was the one maybe closest to Jesus, maybe knew him the best. Peter probably got scolded by Jesus more, but I think John probably knew him the best. And yet he said, he did so many things that we couldn't even begin to catalog them all. Let me just share with you three or four things in closing this morning. There is much more about Jesus than we now know. The Bible says we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Jesus can do way more, the Bible says, than we could ever imagine or think. That, that's why it's so important, or one of the reasons why it's so important to know that no one else 
can offer that. It's only Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. There's so much more that Jesus can do that we don't even know. Secondly, we should live lives of gratitude for what we do know and have experienced. How many can honestly raise your hand and say, Jesus has done a whole lot for me? How many can raise your hand? So you don't know everything he can do, but you should live lives of gratitude for what he has done. And we're not very grateful people. I'm just saying the American Christian's not a very grateful person. We complain about everything. We complain if the temperature's not right, complain if the seat's too hard, too soft, the back's not good enough. We complain if the sermon's too long, too short. You know, nobody here does. I'm talking about other Christians, not, not you I'm just saying we, we are, we're not grateful people, but everybody raised their hand. Jesus has done all these things for me. We should live lives of gratitude for what we do know. We should live, live lives of humility, realizing that our vision is clouded. We don't even know everything he is doing. I mean, there's some things he's doing that we don't even know he's doing. There are, there are things that he is working out in your life and in mine, and sometimes they feel like really bad things. On the other side, we're going to say, oh my goodness, you are working all things together for the good of those who love God who are called according to his purpose. You really did what you said you'd do, God. So we should live our lives humbly. Before you start saying, God didn't do that for me, just wait. Just, just relax and see what God does with that. Number four, we should live lives of excited anticipation, knowing that he can do immeasurably more than we ask or think. Many other signs that Jesus did, if they were written, I suppose even all the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. I'm gonna close with this. J.D. Greer illustrates this so well. He, he illustrates how the beauty and the majesty of God and the anticipation of what he can do causes our hearts to desire him more than we could ever desire sin or anything else in the world. He says this, think of our relationship with Christ like a balloon. There are two ways to keep a balloon afloat. If you fill a balloon with your breath, the only way to keep it in the air is to continually smack it upward. That's how religion keeps us motivated. It hits you, stop doing this, get busy with that. Greer says, and I can relate, this is my life as a pastor. People come on Sunday so I can smack them about something. Be more generous, and they do that for a week. Go to missions, and they sign up for a trip. Every week I smack them back into spiritual orbit. No wonder people don't like being around me, he says. But there's another way to keep a balloon afloat. Fill it with helium. Then it floats on its own. No smacking required. When you see the size and the beauty of God, when you see that if we wrote down every sign that Jesus ever did, there would not be enough volumes in all the world to contain it. When you see how great he is, it's like helium filling that balloon. Nobody has to smack you to serve him. You're just in awe and wonder and it keeps us soaring spiritually that's why paul prayed this i pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit and your inner being so that christ may dwell in your hearts through faith 
And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and how long and how high and deep is the love of Christ. Fill our hearts with that anticipation this morning, Jesus. Fill our hearts with awe and wonder of your 